Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Friday the 9th of October, we held a webinar on the state of housing in New Zealand and how this issue was being tackled in the election. This was part of a series of online panel discussions delving into some of the big issues facing us in the 2020 government election. Kia ora koutou, everyone. Welcome to Victoria University of Wellington. My name's Simon Chappell, and this is a, a, a webinar on issues of New Zealand's housing crisis. It's the last of four seminars that the uh, university has run in conjunction with uh, the election, looking at some really big issues which are, are fundamental to New Zealand going We've got three speakers, myself included. Each speaker will have about 10 minutes to um, speak. Um, as I say, my name is Simon Chappell. I'm Director of the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies here at VIC, um, and my background is in, in public policy. Um, we're also really fortunate to have uh, Dr. Claire Ahmed here with us. Now, Claire's background is in international children's rights, and she's got a strong background uh, in child policy, currently works as the general manager of advocacy for Bernardo's New Zealand. And she's very enthusiastic about advancing and protecting the rights of children in Tamariki and also globally. She has a doctorate in international children's rights from uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands. And she is also on the Children's Convention Monitoring Group of Children's Commissioner. She's going to look at housing from a rights perspective and particularly from the perspective of child rights. Um, lovely contrast, we've got Mark Southcombe. Mark has a background as an architect and an academic, a fellow of the New Zealand Institute of Architects. Research is very interestingly focused on conceptualizing housing in a different fashion from the way that we've traditionally done in and we're certainly in an area where we need innovation and new thinking. Uh, he's particularly interested in collective approaches to housing and urban approaches to housing. He's co-edited a recent issue of Counter Futures, uh, which is focused on housing in New Zealand, and is co-author of a book called Ecologies Design, Transforming Architecture, Landscape and Urbanism. So fascinated to hear from both of uh, those two speakers. Um, what I'm going to do now is to talk a little bit about um, what the problems are in the housing market and what different um, political parties are, are offering. I've gone online and looked at uh, the um, party policies um, and to be frank, they're fairly light. Um, and in a sense, I think don't address many of the fundamental problems. And we'll go into that in a little bit more. What are the problems in the housing market? Well, there's clearly an issue of affordability. Uh, there's a second issue, which is around quality, the issue of quantity and quality of housing in New Zealand. Um, what we've seen in New Zealand in, in the last 30 odd years is massively rising household housing values compared to family incomes. And these rises in house prices have been massively variable across space. 
So if you're living in Westport, for example, you will have had a very different housing uh, value experience from someone living say, in Auckland. Now that's created far greater inequality uh, in terms of the ownership of wealth in New Zealand. And it's also redirected productive investment into speculation in the housing market. As a consequence, we've had falling rates of home ownership and higher numbers of people renting. And this has mean, meant that people have lost a stake in a local community. Uh, it's undermined our New Zealand uh, retirement system, which is largely predicated on someone uh, owning a house, older people out of poverty. And it's created a problem of what I regard as dynastic inequality. So a lot of the focus in terms of uh, unaffordability of houses has been on the intergenerational issue. And that's not quite the way I see it. I see it more as dynastic inequality, because if you're a young person and your parent owns a house in, say, Auckland or Wellington, uh, the consequence of high and unaffordable housing is much, much less than, say, if you are living in Auckland and your parent owns a house in Westport for example, or indeed you live in South Auckland and your parent doesn't own a wall. So there's the, that issue that I, I think is particularly pertinent. Um, and because more people are renting, there are very weak incentives in the rental market for landlords to improve housing quality. Uh, and that poor housing quality is, undermines people's health and well-being. At the same time, we've seen in the last 30 odd years a considerable rise in homelessness um, in, in both a broad and, and narrow sense. In terms of the causes of the problem, we've had, uh, there are a number of, of, of different causes. We've had very high rates of population growth, particularly in the last five or six years with really high rates of net immigration and comparatively high fertility rates compared to other OECD countries. Um, we have no taxation of capital gains from property ownership. So I've certainly made more money on my house in many of the last uh, five or six years than I've made uh, actually working, and I pay no tax on that. We've had a very long duration speculative bubble in the housing market and years of underinvestment in social housing. Uh, we've had weak building regulation. We've had welfare benefits at the bottom end, which were not indexed to real incomes and therefore unable to keep up with rising rental rates. Um, and we've got various regulatory barriers on the supply side of the labour market through the uh, Resource Management Act and zoning. And lastly, my laundry list is that we have a problem of competition in our building industry give you an idea of where we're at currently. Um, I've looked at the demography um, index of unaffordability and effectively this looks at the price, the median price of a house in New Zealand, so the price of the, of the, the, the middle priced house compared to median household income. Now that ratio is defined as uh, affordable if uh, house prices are less than a ratio of three to household income. Um, if we look at countries we often compare ourselves to, the United States is moderately, moderately unaffordable. Their ratio is about four. Canada 
Ireland and the UK are seriously unaffordable at 4.4, 4.7 and 4.6. Australia is seriously unaffordable at 6.9 and astoundingly New Zealand sits at 8.6. So the median house price is 8.6 times the median household income in New Zealand. We have a serious problem. That problem, according to Treasury, is only going to get worse in the next uh, four years. The information that, that Treasury released regarding what's happening to house prices in New Zealand had house prices falling this year. Well, there's no evidence of that. And then house prices going very, growing very rapidly through to 2024. So uh, we're in a situation where um, we have a massive problem. There's no sign of resolution of that financial problem in terms of affordability. So we need new innovative solutions and we need some really hard decisions made by the politicians because uh, house prices need to fall, uh, need to be halved in order to make house, houses affordable again in New Zealand. That means a lot of people are going to lose a lot of wealth. That's a really tough thing for politicians to face up to. And thus far, I don't think they've faced up to it. Um, in any case, that's the big picture. Um, and we, at this point, are going to pass over to Mark, who's going to talk about alternative solutions, alternative models of home ownership, alternative models of housing that um, try and avoid the trap of housing as a speculative asset. Um, thank you very much for listening to me. Over to you, Mark. Thank you, Simon. Uh, it would be really helpful if we could just have the political parties' positions, the bit that you uh, you mentioned. Uh, so, uh... I, I think overall, my impression was that the political parties are, are, are very thin. Uh, if you look at the major political parties, National and Labour are quite light on housing policy. Labour are pretty much saying we're moving in the right direction, more of the same. Um, the National Party are uh, very focused on changing the Resource Management Act on the supply side to um, address the issues. Um, New Zealand First lacks any announced housing policies when I last looked. Um, Māori Party uh, housing policy is reducible to giving housing resources to uh, Māori. Somewhat to my surprise, the parties that had the most policies are the smaller parties like Green and Top, and there was a surprising amount of policy from new Conservatives. It, I think overall there's a general agreement, if not a consensus, that there are issues on the regulatory side, but there's probably a lack of consensus about how to address the regulatory side. There's no child focus for any of the parties in terms of housing. And there's very little in the way of explicit problem definition and, and priorities. No party is clear that house prices, in order to address affordability, house prices are going to have to halve. And the more that they put off addressing that fundamental reality, the worse the problem is going to get. 
And indeed, when you look at the policies of some parties, they seem to have the potential to exacerbate rather than solve the affordability problem. So in the case of National, for example, they are going to remove uh, controls on foreign ownership, which is clearly going to increase demand and exacerbate the problem. And I think this is the challenge when so many of the voting public hold large housing portfolios, they don't want, you know, they're the marginal voters. And, and you know, we've caught in a little bit of a democratic bind here. Thanks, Simon. Yeah. So uh, uh, that's a good context. Uh, and you've outlaid, I think, the uh, problems in terms of uh, affordability and uh, their causes uh, really, uh, really well. When we start to drill into what that means, uh, it means that, uh, for instance, the under-delivery uh, over uh, the last 20 years of enough um, social slash affordable housing uh, means that uh, there is uh, increased demand for state and social housing for people with serious and urgent housing need, for example. Um, also, uh, there's uh, a whole emergency and transitional housing sector that's emerged, right? All part of the need for affordable and accessible housing and government uh, really focused on addressing that. Um, somewhere further up the um, housing spectrum, uh, there's a group of people who are uh, very active in the housing market at the moment, uh, trying to buy first homes. And uh, 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 that is at a certain, uh, certain point of income level, and it's at a certain cost point uh, for new housing. Uh, they can't, uh, there's only uh, so much that can be done to reduce cost. Um, but I guess my big concern is for the big group of people in between, uh, sometimes described as uh, the working poor, but actually they're uh, a, a big wide uh, demographic of lower middle income earners who, uh, uh, as you uh, suggested, uh, Simon, haven't had uh, the advantage of dynastic um, um, uh, support. Uh, so uh, that group of people is growing. Uh, it's predicted in 20 years time that home ownership in New Zealand will have declined from 65% uh, around where it is now to around 50. Okay. And with that, we have increasing uh, uh, inequality. So what are we going to do about it? Um, uh, I believe the really big issue is the financialization uh, of housing. The housing's investment and speculative value, housing as product. Uh, there is a big, big part of the housing delivery industry that's focused on that. Uh, uh, and uh, so while the speculative component is so profitable for so many, uh, there's not an incentive uh, uh, to address that. Uh, there are ways it can be addressed to decouple somehow the, um, particularly the land component from housing and our public housing, 
and uh, uh, we see uh, different mechanisms that are adopted in other countries to deal with that. And in fact, we have uh, really good examples uh, in Murray housing here with shared land. Uh, so uh, uh, there are some things that need to be done to address the um, uh, the that whole increasing speculative value of, of land. Um, so you mentioned uh, alternative housing, uh, but we need to recognise that collective housing, which is my area of expertise, is actually the dominant form of housing in New Zealand today. Right, it's not alternative. Uh, we no longer live out the quarter acre dream on big sites in the suburbs. Uh, except uh, on occasional uh, um, situations like the Christchurch situation where there was massive amounts of peripheral land made available to facilitate uh, uh, very fast housing growth. Uh, and uh, the results of that uh, Christchurch will live with for a long time. Uh, in terms of uh, a slightly donut type of city in terms of its um, uh, centre and uh, uh, a very car-centred, uh, travel-centred uh, um, uh, community. Uh, but today, uh, actually, we are living in higher density. Right, so it'll be those higher density models, those collective housing models that are our future. And this is where uh, uh, the investment uh, really needs to go. And there's various ways that that can occur, particularly through things such as uh, cooperatives, uh, uh, direct collective uh, building uh, procurement and other um, kind of shared models. But even, uh, I guess, uh, also uh, working through uh, other uh, types of uh, structures to decouple land tenure, such as community land trusts uh, and uh, leased land. Great. Um, thank you for that, um, Mark. Questions for you about that? A lot of stuff to unpack there. Um, Claire, over to you. Kia ora Simon, uh, kia ora tātou, ina mana, ina reo, ina hoewha, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Claire Akmad toku ingoa, kei te mahi a hau i Bernardo's. Ko tēnei taku mahi ki a koutou i tēnei ahihahi. Um, great to have so many people who have jumped online to join this um, corridor this afternoon and it's a real pleasure to be with you um, Simon and Mark. Um, so today my comments will really focus on um, housing as a human right um, and with a particular focus on the impacts on children in Tamariki here in Aotearoa. And I want to start by um, sharing some words from the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to an adequate standard of housing, Leilani Faha, um, who some of you might be aware um, visit, visited New Zealand on a special mission earlier in 2020. Um, and I think um, some of her closing statements provide a very um, clear statement of the problem that we are faced with in New Zealand from a human rights perspective. So she said that the housing crisis in Aotearoa, New Zealand is in fact a human rights crisis. 
the housing conditions, high rates of homelessness, inaccessible housing stock, unaffordability and escalating rents, substandard conditions including overcrowding and a lack of security of tenure for tenants and a lack of social, affordable and community housing for those in need, alongside an abundance of unaffordable family dwellings available for home ownership are all inconsistent with the enjoyment of the right to housing. And she goes on to say that these conditions would never have arisen to this extent had housing been fully understood, recognised and implemented by governments as a human right and a social good, rather than an asset for wealth accumulation and growth over the last decades. So I just share those as a bit of a backdrop to the comments that I'll make um, this afternoon. And my um, corridor will really focus on three areas. So first of all, um, the International Human Rights Framework and Te Tiriti o Waitangi. Secondly, um, human rights and housing in Aotearoa and the impact on children in Tamariki. And then a few um, comments to wrap up on, I guess, where to from here some potential solutions um, to the housing crisis grounded in the human rights uh, framework and Te Tiriti o Waitangi. So first of all, I just encourage us all when we're thinking about um, our right to housing as um, a right that has a layer, a number of layers of protection, a web of protection, if you like. Um, so we have to start by looking at um, what's available for everyone under the international human rights um, framework. And so that takes us to Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which sets out that everyone has a right to an adequate uh, standard of living to support their health and well-being um, and that of their family. And then that right is um, reinforced in Article 11 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. So the key point here being that international human rights law recognises everyone's right to an adequate standard of living, including housing. But we know that um, globally, despite this right, um, over a billion people um, are not adequately housed um, and don't live in housing that supports their human dignity. And obviously we've heard already a bit about how that is affecting our people in Aotearoa. So housing as a human right um, is also found in a number of international uh, human rights uh, treaties alongside those that's, that I've mentioned. For example, the Convention on the Rights of Persons uh, with Disabilities. And just in terms of the content of the adequate, um, what adequate housing and that right really means. Um, so the um, Committee on International um, Economic, Social and Cultural Rights has been really clear on this. So they say that the um, characteristics of housing adequacy include at a minimum, security of tenure, affordability, access to services and infrastructure, habitability, accessibility, location and cultural adequacy. So in summary, that right to housing under international human rights law is really about a right to live in peace and security and in dignity and to also experience equality and non-discrimination when it comes to that right to housing. So the right to housing encapsulates uh, freedoms, entitlements and protections. 
We also need to remember that New Zealand has committed um, to the Sustainable Development Goals and SDG 11.1 is really clear that by 2030, um, the countries that have signed up to the SDGs have committed to ensure access for all to adequate, safe and affordable housing. Then um, in New Zealand, we need to come to that next layer of protection. And here, this is the um, layer of protection relating to our Māori people. Um, so we have to go to Te Tiriti or Waitangi um, because it is one of the fundamental threads of um, in that web of human rights protection relating to housing in Aotearoa. We have to understand the right to housing um, through a te tiriti lens um, to understand the scope of the right to housing for Māori. Uh, te tiriti guarantees Māori a right to tino rangatiratanga, which can be translated um, as self-determination. And this requires people to be able to exercise control over their own resources um, and to be able to influence their own outcomes and destiny. Um, and te tiriti also protects relationships between tangata whenua and uh, the whenua and land in Aotearoa and other resources. So I believe that it's essential um, that we have to understand the obligations that government has to Māori interrelated to the right to housing. Um, and this is really important to keep in mind because I'll come um, shortly to a bit of commentary on how Māori are disproportionately affected by our housing crisis in Aotearoa um, today. And then the third layer of protection that I want to mention um, is um, children's rights and housing. So there is specific recognition under the International Human Rights Framework for um, children's right to housing under Article 27 of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And um, that article states that um, all states, parties to the convention recognize the right of every child to a standard of living adequate for the child's physical, mental, spiritual, moral and social development. So that's a very holistic approach to the right to housing for children, which is um, wonderful. And indeed, if we um, look through a Māori um, lens, so for example, um, we can see connections to a framework like um, Sir Mason Jury's Te Whare Tapawha, which talks about the importance of taking into consideration te taha hininaro, te taha wairua, te taha tinana and te taha whanau. In terms of um, housing for children, um, the right to a, a adequate standard of living into a house is more than just a roof over a child's head. I think we can all agree that um, every child should be able to grow up in a home that is affordable, that is safe and that is healthy because it's central to um, child well-being. So those are my kind of initial comments around um, just framing within um, the international human rights and tertiary kind of framework. So when we look at the impact of the housing crisis in Aotearoa on human rights today, um, we can see a number of factors. Simon's already mentioned some of them, um, insecurity of housing, precarity for families and whanau, homelessness, um, those significant health impacts. 
um, and particular impacts on um, certain population groups. So the ongoing impact of colonization on Māori, I believe, um, really can be seen in, in a manifestation today in the impacts of the housing crisis on um, Māori and whānau. Um, so the dispossession of land and culture and displacement of Māori from land and home ownership really is coming through and having that strong negative impact on tamariki and whānau and mokopuna. So Māori are disproportionately um, represented amongst homeless populations. Um, they also represent 60% of those who receive emergency housing and special needs grants, for example. Um, and home ownership rates for Māori in 2018 were 43% in comparison to 63% for the general population. I also want to point here to the interconnected and interdependent nature of the housing crisis as a problem in New Zealand with other systems level problems such as um, poverty for families, um, low incomes, um, our inequality and wealth gap, um, and also uh, the impact and kick-on effect that the housing crisis has for children when it comes to things like ability to engage in education, um, their social inclusion and participation in their lives and in their communities. Also, a couple of other problems that exist from a human rights perspective are around um, discrimination. Um, we do have dis systemic discrimination in our housing system in Aotearoa, and that's reflected in um, complaints that go to the Human Rights Commission every year, for example, based on um, race status, disability status, and family status. And also, we have access to justice issues, for example, for renters, it can be really um, difficult to access justice when it comes to housing because of some of the system settings that we have. Just delving a little bit more deeply into the problems that um, children face right now because of our housing crisis, we have around um, 30,000 children who are annually admitted to hospital with preventable housing-related diseases caused by those unhealthy um, living conditions for tamariki. And in a comparatively wealthy nation, um, this is simply inexcusable. Also, um, the Ministry of Health data shows us that a lack of safe and secure home affects um, all areas of a child's life. And um, for children who are admitted to hospital from housing-related diseases, they are 10 times more likely to die in the next 10 years than their peers, which is quite staggering. Um, and the level of toxic stress that um, exists in households where um, housing is a problem and where poverty is ever present, that can really have a significant impact on um, parents' relationships, their relationships with their children, um, and in turn can um, negatively affect child development. Through our work, um, the work that we do at Bernardo's, working with families in Fano every day, we, we are concerned that the um, impact on, of COVID-19 um, will have a significant kick-on effect into the housing crisis. We think that it is likely to deepen as more and more workers and families face that uncertain future. So makes it even more important for the next government to really get it right. And for rangatahi, so young people in particular, um, the housing crisis is affecting them in particular ways. So 
due to that lack of emergency and social housing and transitional housing, um, homelessness and transience. And this obviously has a big impact on young people's identity, um, their sense of social connectedness, um, especially if they're uprooted and can't participate in their communities. So in terms of where to from here, I do want to mention that there have been some recent positive system level developments that I take as um, some signs of hope. Um, so I do want to mention them so it's not all doom and gloom. Um, so we have had reform recently of the Residential Tenancies Act. There have been some positive um, changes in there around um, better security of tenure for renters, um, also some really positive provisions around family violence um, and renters as well. The healthy home standards um, directed towards having that minimum um, threshold standards for rental homes to ensure um, they're healthy and safe for humans to, to live in, that those are a, a good um, development. Also, I point to Kainga Ora's accessibility policy. Um, it's not perfect, but at least it's a start to have at least 15% of new houses to meet universal design standards. We have, uh, for the first time, a New Zealand Homeless Action Plan. Um, and also we have the Child Poverty Reduction Act with um, child poverty indicators embedded in the legislation, including housing affordability and housing quality. And I also encourage people, if you're interested um, and concerned in this area, then keep an eye on Y2750, which is the Housing Policy and Services Inquiry at the Waitangi Tribunal, um, which will hear um, outstanding grievances and claims for Fano, hapu and iwi, um, many in relation to a failure to ensure that adequate standard of housing for Māori. So in terms of um, solutions, because I am um, big on trying to bring solutions to the table. So the first thing that I would say, um, we do need to have solutions that are grounded in uh, te tiriti or waitangi, a child rights approach and the international human rights framework. So an access to an affordable and healthy home is absolutely crucial to supporting families and whānau to be lifted out of poverty, poor health and insecurity. So the next government really needs to have a clear and comprehensive plan for fixing the housing crisis. And I would argue for a specific goal embedded at the heart of that plan to be around every child in New Zealand being able to grow up in an affordable and safe and healthy home. And Leilani Faha, the um, special rapporteur, has recommended that um, the, we need to have a human rights-based strategy um, with te tiriti at the base of that um, and also have um, a focus on implementing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. When it comes to our Māori um, whānau, I suggest that we need to be um, doing better on supporting, facilitating and providing financial resourcing to iwi and to hapu um, and to work on papakainga projects um, supported strongly by government funding. Lifting up to the systems level, we really need to have housing legislation and policy that is grounded in and promotes the human right to housing. We don't have that embedded right now in our national law. We need to have it expressly in there so that um, everyone can be clear and that successive governments can be clear on what they need to change. Of course, as discussed earlier, we need to have more affordable rentals. We need to have better staircasing into progressive home ownership models. 
and we need to end our homelessness crisis in Aotearoa and that needs to be a priority and it's a huge one for children and young people. I have been delving into the um, political parties policies because there have been a few things um, just released over the last few days actually so just a bit of quick analysis in light of um, the suggested approach that I've outlined. Um, so no party has committed to a holistic national housing plan or strategy that's explicitly grounded in tetiriti and a human rights and child rights approach. So that is problematic, but there are some positive signs. Um, so the Greens Green Party approach does seem to be underpinned by a human rights approach to housing. Um, there is a focus on the right of children to live in safe, affordable and secure homes and particular, uh, particularly a focus on improving housing standards. Labour as well just in the last few days has come out with their healthy homes, healthy children, healthy hearts um, initiatives so that will be a plan to drive down rheumatic fever which is a disease that shouldn't exist for children in a rich country like New Zealand. Um, so that would see Labour expand the healthy homes initiatives and strengthen healthy home compliance. So obviously that is a good thing um, for children. National Party um, and ACT, um, as Simon mentioned, big focus on RMA reform, which I would say is just one part of the puzzle. It's not a panacea for everything. Um, it is good to see, though, from the National Party, a focus on increasing housing supply, a rent-to-own scheme. But there are some concerns that I have around um, an indication to change rental regulations and to simplify these. So we do need to know more from the National Party about whether they intend to repeal, revoke or diminish landlord responsibilities to meet those um, minimum standards of heating, insulation, ventilation, moisture ingress and drainage for rental properties. That's absolutely crucial. We need to know more about that. Um, the Māori Party, um, it's good to see a focus on how housing would affect whānau. So they are um, saying that they would build 2,000 homes across two years and put 50% of all new social housing towards Māori whānau. So just to round off, um, ultimately from a, a human rights and a child rights perspective, we need the next government, no matter what its makeup, um, to commit to protecting and promoting the right of all children in Tamariki to live in affordable, healthy and secure homes, and to recognise the human right to an adequate standard of living and housing for, for all that it is. It is so much more than just a roof over one's head. It is really about human and child wellbeing. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. We've got um, a, a couple of questions on taxation and, and housing, and, and they do part it. First says, does a lack of capital gains on real estate sales and no land taxes with very small local property taxes lead to speculation and increased price of property? Um, and, and I will pass this over to both Mark and Claire, but I can't resist uh, answering it with a single word, yes. Um, and the second one is the use of trusts that bifurcate income from real estate rentals, distort allocation of resources and investments, leading to increased prices. And, and again, my, my short answer is yes. I think the political economy here, and I'd like Claire and Mark's perspective on, on this one too, 
the real challenges. How do we say to middle New Zealand, to people like me who own substantial wealth and housing, your wealth is going to halve. If we get this policy right, you're going to be substantially worse off because that's the problem that none of the politicians want to be explicit about. Uh, if we solve this thing, whatever the policies are, there are going to be substantial numbers of marginal voters who are going to be much worse off in terms of their wealth. How do we deal with that knotty political problem? Anyway, over to, to Mark and Claire to follow up on both tax question, but also that fundamental issue. Look, we need to be honest. A group of people are going to lose out here and they will lose out massively. How do we handle that? Yeah, uh, that's the nettle, isn't it, that needs to be grasped. I'm not a tax person, but uh, I think uh, uh, your answers, uh, it's all pretty self-evident. And your question, Simon, I think only covers potentially half of the population. And you're not thinking about the half of the population that gets disenfranchised every time there's a movement in property prices, right? And the property owners get a tax-free uh, dividend, right? So uh, somehow, uh, I think uh, we need a vision that looks forward uh, as well as back. If we look back, we had a fairly egalitarian society at one point, but there is this, and you can see it in all the statistics and the types of houses built, for instance, um, quite an inequality here, and it seems to be increasing. Uh, do we want to have uh, that sort of society in the future? Or do we want to find a way that somehow starts to even up the playing field, even if that means uh, property owners like yourself and me start paying a little bit more of our share? Yeah, I think just to add to what um, Simon and Mark have said, I think that these are fundamentally, you know, systems level problems that, and we have to look at them at, at that level. And I would say, you know, the tax system has a big role to play here. Um, so I think pretty much yes and yes to both the questions that were asked as well from me. Um, but I guess there has been a, a failure of successive governments to really take that interconnected view of these problems. Um, so that has to change. Um, you know, our tax system is fundamentally linked to the, the poverty problem that we have in New Zealand and also the inequality and, and wealth gap problem. Um, at the moment, I'm um, advocating as part of a um, campaign called Five to Thrive. This is an initiative of Bernardo's Te Kahui Manaririki, uh, Save the Children New Zealand and Whanua Fina Plunkett. And one of the issues that we're focusing on there is housing, but another one is around poverty and the need to lift incomes. Um, and we're you know, really saying we've got three major problems in that area. The first of all, we have a, a huge wealth inequality gap in New Zealand. 
Secondly, we have a problem with incomes. We have such low levels of incomes in New Zealand that um, you know, many of the families who we work with, they are working two, three, four uh, low paid jobs and still can't make ends meet um, to, to help their children to thrive. And thirdly, you know, we've got a problem with our welfare system as well. Um, it simply is not paying um, benefits at a rate that um, enable people to live lives of dignity. So that's a long way of saying that, you know, we have to step back. We have to see these systems as interconnected. Um, the next government and successive governments thereafter really must um, address these problems in that holistic manner. Otherwise, we're not going to see the intergenerational shifts that we, we need to see um, really urgently. Um, and, you know, especially for our Māori whānau, um, the reverberating impacts of colonisation today, um, they have to be addressed um, so that they can be supported to thrive. Government and our um, you know, national level systems have a huge role to play in that. Thanks, Claire and Mark. A, a, a couple more questions. The first one's about institutions. One of our um, participants is saying, uh, should we in fact create a specific organisation or agency address the problem in a longer term rather than simply one political cycle. Um, Claire, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think our, when it comes to these big um, Mali problems, our three-year terms of government simply don't help. Um, and so that's why I think we need to see commitment like we've seen when it comes to um, poverty, family poverty, child poverty in New Zealand, we need to see cross-party consensus on the, the core of what needs to change in New Zealand because that will help make it stick um, further than that kind of three-year um, relatively short political cycle. In terms of a, um, a specific institution, um, I'm not necessarily certain that creating another organisation or agency to address this over the longer term is the way. What I would suggest though, is that we need to see greater cross-agency work from our existing um, institutions to come together and actually commit to that longer term um, multi-year plan that has you know, um, sensible time horizons built into it. So I'm talking a two-year, five-year, 10-year, 15-year type um, staggering of milestones. Um, and just a commitment around, you know, the, the key fundamental things that need to change. Um, and of course, we need to also see allocations in our national budget that will allow that interagency joined up work to happen better. Just to follow up on that, Claire, do you see the new public sector act as, uh, how optimistic are you that, that that new act is going to result in the more joined up government that, um, you're looking for in this space? Look, I think um, the jury's a bit out on that. I am hopeful that we can um, use that new legislation as the basis for 
better cross-agency working. I think the proof is going to be into the, um, is going to come from the initiative that's taken by individual um, departmental chief executives to take the lead on really implementing that with vigour to um, steward the public service in a way that really binds together and takes um, so approaches to these problems as, you know, holistic and joined up um, and that puts aside, I guess, uh, individual uh, agency perspectives for the greater overall um, goal that is trying to be addressed. Um, you know, we've seen that there is um, the possibility of that. We've seen some glimmers of hope with the um, joint venture uh, family violence prevention. Um, we've seen some glimmers of hope around um, how agencies have been working together around um, issues relating to poverty. There's still a long way to go though, um, and it comes down to the individual will of um, yeah, chief executives and um, public officials, I think. Mark, would, would you like to comment on the uh, institutional solution and, and if, if you, you, you in, in addition, maybe broaden it out a little bit to say, well, what other solutions do you see coming from your expertise that we could adopt in this space to make things better in the future for affordability and quality? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I think there is progress being made in this area uh, already. Um, and uh, we have history too. We had something at one point called the Ministry of Works and Development, uh, which uh, for all its uh, um, uh, uh, issues at times uh, uh, did provide uh, infrastructure that the country needed uh, in, uh, on a long-term basis. Um, and at the moment in housing and urban development, uh, I'm really encouraged by the appointment of a chief science advisor and a lot of the connected research that has been coming out of there and being put together. So I, th I think uh, it's taken a while, but uh, there's some momentum there uh, to provide a, a a real uh, basis in data to support uh, good long-term housing policy and significant changes uh, uh, to the way that we uh, deliver housing. Um, in terms of other models, um, I think um, for me, uh, direct collective building procurement is far preferable to developer building procurement. So, uh, and again, housing and urban development is increasingly looking to procure their own work rather than uh, working through third party uh, uh, parties, uh, uh, although they do that as well. So uh, uh, it means that it's net costs uh, that we are then paying for building delivery. And also, uh, we have greater control over quality. Uh, uh, inevitably, it, with the developer procurement process, uh, there is an incentive to reduce quality and cost to 
the uh, to the level that the client or agency will accept because to do otherwise is to reduce their profit and that's just the nature of it that's not a failure of a system that's a success of a system uh, that's commerce uh, uh, and what it does uh, but what it means is when you're delivering a lot of housing and uh, needing to deliver a lot of housing uh, well then it justifies this kind of uh, uh, agency uh, that's doing it itself rather than um, contracting it out. Um, uh, other alternatives? Yeah, there was, uh, there's an interesting precedent from uh, Vienna actually uh, at, after the war when uh, they had this massive need for housing and they over-delivered it. Uh, and uh, the way they did it uh, is very applicable to New Zealand uh, because our building industry is made up of a lot of small and medium-sized consultants and uh, contractors, right? What they did there is they hired a hundred of them. So rather than thinking, oh, we'll put it all together and give it to Fletcher's, they went out and said, look, we'll, we'll get uh, 100 of them all to deliver housing, all within the um, building cycle of one generation. So they all got busy designing them uh, and then uh, delivering them. And of course, that kind of approach would require capacity. So it means there's other things not being done while that's happening. But it was so remarkably successful, they delivered uh, a lot more than they thought they would. It seems remarkable over a five-year period. So the evidence is there in the history that uh, alternative approaches can deliver housing. I guess the other the other point that's really worth making is that uh, we tend to be quite hands-off uh, with our regulations. And uh, you look at a, a place like London, where they have the London Housing Guide, which sets out the minimum standards really, really rigorously, uh, really rigorously. And that's what you've got to provide. And the other thing that they do, which is even more remarkable, is that they have the mandatory provision of affordable housing. So how does that work? Uh, if you're delivering, uh, you're a developer and you're wanting to develop housing in Chelsea, they say the data tells us you need 42% of your housing stock to be affordable. So every project as a condition of the consenting has to deliver, right? And so it results in these wonderfully diverse communities, right? Whereas here we have, uh, it's all uh, a lot more hands-off. Uh, we're a little bit scared to do things like that because it does slow things down. And that's, of course, the downside of it and the initial parts of uh, people becoming used to a new system. Uh, of course, it slows uh, things down. Instead, we have things like um, restrictive covenants on a lot of our land that results in only exclusive enclaves, right? And that's all there from the developer to make sure they maximise their profits. And it's there for the homeowner for the investment value of their home, not for the living value, for the investment value of their home. And it literally prevents affordable housing on a lot of the land in New Zealand. Really interesting question here. And first to Mark. Um, question Mark. Mark goes, do you think there are cultural barriers to New Zealand embracing different styles of living? Do you think that we are 
uh, that nostalgia that we have for the quarter acre still exists, or do you see the country is moving on? Maybe first to you, and then Claire, as a as I say, as a younger New Zealander, what are your impressions? Yes, uh, absolutely, uh, and this is the problem with uh, uh, overseas models. Yeah, we have a predominantly colonial heritage in terms of the way we manage our, our land and our, our building. Um, remarkably, in New Zealand, we have almost no cooperative housing. I say almost, there's Peterborough in uh, Christchurch, which is the closest thing we come, but even Peterborough uses unit titles as the mechanism, right? It's not uh, shared land. Although I think the land is owned by trust. I might be wrong on that, but uh, the, the housing potentially, some of that's owned and some of it's shared. Anyhow, it's very close. And it's, the, uh, to my knowledge, the only example of a true cooperative housing. I think the students that I work with think very differently about housing and there is a need to change perceptions. And I would just briefly add that, yes, I think there are um, cultural barriers, but I also think the key issue here is around a generational divide. I think um, younger New Zealanders um, are really keen to um, explore different ways of, of housing, um, indeed cooperative housing, more collective models, and also sustainable housing um, is really important to our younger generations, to me, to my friends, um, to um, many of our um, peers um, and I spent a couple of years living in the Netherlands. It was really refreshing to see the approach um, in some of those European countries to um, cooperative housing um, and just co connected to that the huge value that um, can be brought through those sorts of initiatives when it comes to our conceptions of community um, and that will also be good for our um, children and future generations as well. Thank you, you two. We're coming to the, the close of the uh, session. Really appreciate everyone who's participated. Again, Claire and Mark, thank you so much. I mean, it's been really interesting for me. I've learned a lot, and I hope everyone who's participated um, learned something as well. Kia ora, everyone. Kia ora, Tato. Kia ora. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.